Hello, and welcome to this edition of TechLink in Conversation. I'm Eddie Grant, a director at Technical Connection. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two of the Technical Connection team who will be discussing recent bulletins we have published. Andrina Nisbet is a Chartered Financial Planner and a Holistic Planning Manager at Technical Connection, specialising in supporting advisors with cash flow planning tools. And Simon Martin is a Chartered Financial Planner and a Regional Technical Connection Planning Manager at Technical Connection, specialising in tax, trusts and corporate planning. Welcome, Andrina. Welcome, Simon. Hello. Hi, thanks, Eddie. Um, so if I could start uh, with you, uh, Simon, just by asking you about the recent bulletin that we had on business relief and discretionary will trusts. So um, that bulletin looked at the sort of planning ideas. Could you just start by explaining what is business relief? Sure, no problem at all. So business relief started in the mid-1970s. And the idea behind it is or was to allow uh, small businesses to be passed between generations without uh, being subject to inheritance tax, really to stop businesses being broken up on the on the death of the of the main shareholder. Uh, in 1996, business relief was extended to include uh, minority investing in qualifying companies, and that's where it became probably a bit more interesting from a financial planning. Uh, perspective. Business relief essentially gives 100% uh, exemption from inheritance tax once you've held the qualifying investment for uh, for two years. So it's some effective planning for individuals who perhaps are more advanced in years and unsure that they live seven years for the purposes of an inheritance tax gift, and also those who perhaps are suffering from a little ill health. And again, are unsure that whether they'll they'll meet that that seven year criteria. So, for the right client, it's a very effective piece of inheritance tax planning, and it's a very popular way to reduce or remove potentially a client's inheritance tax liability. It is, however, a higher risk strategy, so it's not for everyone. It's not for every client, but for the right client, it is effective. It's higher risk because of the nature of the underlying investments, effectively smaller companies um, uh, and so on. In terms of mitigating that risk, which is a question we often get, there's lots that can be done. Uh, one particular way, and Andrina will, will talk a little bit more about this, is to use ca- things something like cash flow forecasting to establish whether these funds are ever going to be needed for the client's lifetime. And if they're not, I think there's more opportunity to consider actually this would be an effective piece of planning and the client can fundamentally afford to take that risk. That's great. And in terms of uh, death, what is the sort of mechanics for business relief on death if I'm holding shares in a company? Absolutely. So assuming you've been holding those company company shares for two years, there won't be an inheritance tax charged on the value of those shares. So effectively, the relief is, is crystallized and applied to the value of those shares. So whereas if you had perhaps an ISA or cash or an investment bond, they would be charged to inheritance tax, the value of the shares will be, you know, will be nil for inheritance tax purposes. And therefore, it's a, a really good way for the right client of reducing significantly their inheritance tax, um, their inheritance tax position uh, and being able to pass more money fundamentally to their family uh, post post death. So for the right client, 
as I said, it's a great bit of planning and the relief is applied on death. And that's important. It's not applied pre-death. It's not a, you can't get a pre-death confirmation on death. The rules are applied. And if it continues to qualify, it won't be charged to inheritance tax. And uh, from a, a planning point of view, what, what sort of things should I be considering on death? There's a lot to think about on death. Fundamentally, it is designed to save tax on death. So, so death is, is the key point. But for many couple, many people we deal with are, are married or in a civil partnership. So that raises a number of interesting opportunities, but also considerations. So if the recipient of the business relief, your client passes away and their recipient, the recipient of that asset through the will is potentially is their spouse or civil partner, they are able to aggregate the period of ownership. So let's say Mr. took out the investment, he lived 18 months, he died, and then passed to Mrs. She would only li- need to live another six months to get full business relief qualifying. However, for married couples, passing business relief assets between them is an interesting concept because let's assume it's held for two years and it's therefore exempt. Brilliant, no problem at all. It's an exempt asset. However, passing between them is is going obviously from a, one spouse to another or one spouse to a partner to another, and therefore it would have been exempt in any case. So essentially, it can raise or create a position where you have to hold the asset longer than you might otherwise in order to qualify for the exemption. So Mr. dies, assets go to Mrs. It's already qualified, and then she lives another 15 years, for example. So you have to hold a higher risk investment for quite a long time in order to finally get the relief on second death. So it it raises a number of of questions or considerations for how long might that be? Is that too long to hold an investment of that risk? It raises questions of rule changes. What happens if the rules change in the future and business relief either ceases to be or is applied in in a different way? So it raises a, a couple of challenges, raises a couple of questions around, Can is there a better way to do it? Is there something else that can be done to, to crystallise that relief earlier, to reduce a little bit of risk and to take back a bit more, a bit more control? And uh, in the bulletin, uh, we mentioned discretionary trusts. Um, could you just remind us of uh, how they work and uh, um, how they could be used from a planning perspective? Absolutely. So discretionary trusts are a very um, well-used and effective form of financial planning. And what we look at in the bulletin is how combining a discretionary will trust with with a business relief qualifying investment is a way of taking what is already a good bit of planning and making it even better. So the way it would work in practice would be for the right client, obviously this is their need advice, but for the right client, they could create a discretionary will trust um, in very similar to many clients had before you could share nil rate bands. So create a discretionary will trust and the wording of the will or wording of the will says any business relief qualifying assets go into that discretionary trust. It's important to think about the beneficiaries. So the beneficiaries of that trust could include and usually would include the surviving spouse, the children, and the subsequent generations. So on death of the client who holds a qualifying business relief asset, the transfer of the business relief shares 
goes from them into the trust. Now, it's important to remember as well that any gains within the business relief qualifying assets, as the rules stand, will be uh, rebased on death. So there's no CGT charge to do it. So the transfer of the shares go into the trust. Because it's a business relief qualifying asset, the value going in effectively is nil. So there's no, it won't use up any of the nil band and it won't cause an inheritance tax charge for doing it. The trustees would then hold that business relief asset rather than, for example, the surviving spouse. So the trustees would hold the plan within the trust and that, that gives them three or four significant uh, potential advantages, both in terms of tax and also in terms of control. First of all, you're crystallizing that business relief on first death. Going back to the previous example where spouse B lived for many years longer than spouse A, they would have to keep that investment. By crystallizing it and putting it into the trust, the, inherit the, the business relief is crystallized, the trustees hold the business relief asset, and the IHT exemption has been, been achieved. What that allows them to do is not only do they avoid the risk of rules changing in the future, as well as the longevity risk of holding it, but the trustees could then make an investment decision and decide whether they continue to hold that business relief asset or potentially reinvest in something which is slightly lower risk. So it's allowed the client to take the risk, a bit of risk off the table, to hold an asset in the trust and potentially have a lower risk asset, something, for example, like an investment bond within that trust. They've got the IHT relief, they've got the IHT benefits. It's held now in a trust and it allows them to take a little bit or reduce a little bit of risk. In addition to that, the value of the asset is held by the trust. It's no longer held by the surviving spouse. So as many of you know, once your total assets are over 2 million, and that includes business relief qualifying assets, once your assets are over 2 million, you begin to lose your residence NORIT band. So what it potentially allows clients to do is, rather than passing the asset to the surviving spouse, pass it to the trust, it's not owned by the surviving spouse for the purposes of the 2 million residence NORIT band taper. So it potentially gives them an option to start to claim some of the residence NORIT band. So there's good options for the, 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 the current generation, but there's also some really useful and interesting options for the next generation. A discretionary trust, as I'm sure many of you know, is not treated as, as belonging to anyone for inheritance tax purposes. So it allows the assets to remain outside of the IHT estate of the next generation, even if you've moved it to a non-business relief qualifying asset. Now, as with any trust, there may be some periodic charges, next charges and so on, but it allows the next generation to build up their own assets, to use their own IHT exemptions without exacerbating that on receipt of, of assets or feel the need to keep a high-risk business relief investment for their lifetime in order to, to, concert, to remove the IHT. It gives you a great opportunity to protect multiple generations' IHT. What it also does, we've talked about tax, but it also gives you the opportunity to think carefully about the, your client's family and protecting assets. So trust not only has some taxation benefits, the major benefits really are that protection. So it protects the assets from divorce, from bankruptcy, from long-term care, and from even from beneficiaries that can't be trusted. If you've got beneficiaries or your clients have got beneficiaries, they think, 
but I'm a little bit nervous about them inheriting directly. The trust also gives them a really, really useful layer of, of protection from those assets, either from individuals or potentially even from themselves. And That's also, sorry. there's lots of benefits, but also what it really does is it allows you as financial planners to, to engage with the next generation. So it's really, as you know, as we, we've talked about a lot, engaging multiple, across multiple generations uh, is really important because having a coherent family strategy is, is vital. And this allows you allows you to do that in, a, in an effective way. Brilliant. Th- thank you, Simon. You mentioned um, intergenerational and that, that seamlessly, I hope, um, moves over to uh, Andrina and talking about cash flow planning. So, uh, so um, what we've seen is goals-based life planning is, has become increasingly uh, popular over the years. Um, and these cash flow planning tools in particular uh, have been integral to that. So, Andrina, could you um, start by perhaps explaining um, the cash flow planning tools, how they work? Of course. Um, so as you say, more and more clients uh, nowadays, they want more clarity and financial certainty about their future right into their later years. Um, they want to know, for example, that they won't ever run out of money and they want their financial picture to consider all of their assets, not just their their cash and investments. They want that to include their property, um, new purchases. Uh, you know, they want the help to make choices to achieve their future goals. Um, For example, will they be able to buy a bigger house or a a holiday home in 10 years time? Uh, Will they have enough money to retire comfortably? Um, What a a cash flow tool does, it enables the advisor to present this to the client in a visual way. Um, So the cash flow plan will take account of all income, expenditure, assets, liabilities, future planned expenditure and purchases and they pl- it plots all of this out for your client and sets out their uh, forecasted financial position for each year into the future and by presenting this to the client in a visual way you can show them the cash flow rather than tell them about it which makes it easier for a client to understand and, and digest the information. And um, so when you're setting up these tools, um, are there certain things you need to be considering as you set up the tool? Of course, the the technology um, essentially produces an output that is only as accurate as your input. So it's it's critical that all inputs into the tool are as accurate as possible. Um, Some of the most important parts to to check are the assumptions used in the cash planning uh, cash flow plan these assumptions are used from the start of the plan to increase asset values grow uh, investment accounts increase expenses with inflation and, and and so on so over you know if you're looking over a sort of 30 40 year time frame the difference in an assumed growth rate of just half a percent can make more than a 20% difference in the value of the pot. And that that one assumption could make the difference between, you know, running out of money too soon or or having assets left over uh, when you die. Um, 
in terms of other inputs, uh, the most important uh, or second most important, I'd say, is making sure that the expenditure is captured accurately. Um, initially, right at the start of the plan, you know, it's it's worth sitting down with a client and taking the time to obtain the correct information about what they're spending um, on on their essential expenditure, their discretionary expenditure, what sort of luxuries uh, do they do they like to 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 buy or, or, or hobbies that they like to partake in and make sure that that is as accurate as possible within the plan, um, then you can easily demonstrate to the client whether they have a surplus um, and or, or, you know, whether there's going to be a shortfall if they need to meet any of their, their goals in future. But, yeah, the, essentially... The most important thing is making sure that everything that you input is correct. And by double checking that in, in the detail in, in the tool to make sure that anything that you input is uh, reflected correctly in the, in the outputs. And um, I'm thinking about um, presenting cash flow plans because you, you, you described it as a visual tool. And, and so from a, from a planner's point of view, what should I be thinking about? In terms of presenting cash flow plans, did you have any tips that I could uh, could use? Sure. In most cash flow planning tools, you start off with a pre-advice scenario that reflects the client's current position, without incorporating any of your advice recommendations. Um, and we, we sometimes refer to this as a base plan. Um, it can also reflect the client's goals and their aspirations and it enables you uh, and the client to see if their goals can be met if, if the goals can't be met the shortfall will be visible in the plan often by you know a, a red bar you know it's it's it, it's it's they can see immediately that there, there's going to be a problem um and on top of that, you th you can then layer over additional what if scenarios on top of the base plan that do incorporate your advice recommendations, and then the outcome of those recommendations can be compared back to the base plan to demonstrate the value of the advice that you're giving. Um, so, for example, what if we improved the tax efficiency in retirement by changing the withdrawal strategy um, using a combination of pensions and other assets? Or what if you made um, some, some gifts or, or made some investments into business relief uh, or, or other trust planning, which could uh, mitigate inheritance tax? Um, another very important um, what if scenario that you can demonstrate is what would happen if you know, the client's experienced an early death or a serious illness, you know, how would this impact not only on their goals, but on their day-to-day -day income expenditure uh, cash flows? And, and also, how can we prevent this from being a problem by putting appropriate protection planning into place? Um, this is where the cash flow plan can be so effective when you're sitting down and, and using it with a client, because showing the client a chart with um, you know, the removal of an income shortfall or a clear reduction in their taxes as, as a result of the uh, advice strategy 
it can have an immediate impact on the client and and it's more easy for them to understand and it can it can resonate with them more um powerfully than you know simply reading the words in a suitability letter and um and also from uh from an advice perspective so i'm assuming this is a tool that I can use in particular for ongoing advice. So I can go back and, and revisit it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, with a, with a cash flow plan, as soon as you print it and hand it to the client, the problem is that it's out of date. You know, the, the, the next day their situation changes, their, their assets have, have, have changed in value. Um, they could have a, a change in job, a change in objectives, um, you know, they, they might need uh, to, uh, you know, their, their change in risk profile, for example, because of, of something that's happening. Um, so the best practice would be to obtain updated information on, on just basic facts prior to going out to doing your review meetings and, and updating your that, that data within your, your cash planning, planning, cash flow planning tool. Um and then when you sit with the clients, the, the focus of that review meeting can become their plan, their cash flow plan, um, which the client can be fully involved in and engaged with. And, you know, they, they can sort of take part in the responsibility uh, in, in achieving um, their, their plan and their goals. Um, so, yeah, building the cash flow planning into the service proposition on an ongoing basis can completely transform the way that you, you do business with your clients. Um, and, you know, by demonstrating each year that the value of your advice uh, being added in working towards achieving their, their goals. So it feels like the um, two sort of subject areas go hand in hand quite well in terms of um, looking at business relief, looking at the future, looking at intergenerational planning, and then using a cash flow planning tool to really demonstrate and bring that to life for for a client. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, um, in terms of demonstrating gifts or investments into to business relief, yes, the 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 cash flow tools will will take that into account. And, and if that's a suitable recommendation for the client, then it, it, it's, it's just a different way of demonstrating um, the, the outcome of the recommendation. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for, for your time, Simon and Andrina. I think it's been really helpful and, and also brings to life the bulletins that we produce on a, on a weekly basis. Um, I just uh, want to thank everyone for, for listening to this edition of TechLink in Conversation. Uh, please log into um, TechLink for the latest bulletins. Uh, just leaves me to say, keep well, keep, keep safe, and uh, I look forward to uh, speaking to you in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, bye. The content of this podcast is strictly for general consideration only. No action must be taken or refrained from based on the content alone. Professional advice must always be sought. Accordingly, neither Technical Connection Limited nor any of its officers, employees or contractors can 
take responsibility for any loss occasioned as a result of any such action or inaction.